And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. There are many iterations of Mark Cuban. Sports fans know him as the flamboyant owner of the Dallas Mavericks. Television fans know him as one of the sharks on the highly rated TV show Shark Tank. The business world knows him as an early innovator in internet technology. He's also been outspoken on public issues lately, and I sat down with him this week to talk about all of this. Here's that conversation. Mark Cuban, really, really great to see you. Tough time to be getting together for our country. I saw you were out at a prayer vigil on Sunday. Uh, tell me what moved you to be there. Um, well, a couple of our players um, just said that they were they talked about wanting to go down and would I go with them, and, and it was an easy yes. And, you know, all of Dallas is hurting, but in particular the minority community, and I just wanted to show support, and I didn't go to speak. I just went to listen and, and just to let people know we cared. You also, well, for, I should ask you, what were your impressions when you were there? You know, you could tell people were in pain and, and, and people, um, things were difficult and, and people were uncertain about what would come next. You know, would it get worse? Would it get better? Um, how to deal with it? I mean, we were at the police headquarters and, you know, the chief of police, Renee Hall, was there. And, and so, you know, there's some of that uncertainty and you know, on one hand, everybody wanted to come together, but, you know, there was a little trepidation, but I think as the event wore on, that, that kind of wore off, and there, there was a lot of positive coming out of it, and I think that was, that was the best part. You tweeted a, a statement from the President Lee Pelton, the president of Emerson College in Boston, and it, it was a powerful, powerful state from his, the depths of his personal experience, which is, I think, representative of the experience of people of color all over this country, and you said, dear white people, we are the ones that need to change. This is not one man's story. This is almost every black man's story, which is why the problem is ours. We need to find our way to change what we do. There's no quick fix. It's a moral imperative. That's a powerful statement. I'm asking myself this question as much as you, but why haven't we confronted this? Why haven't we had this recognition? Why does it take a uh, something as dramatic as what we saw up in Minneapolis to stir our consciences and ask ourselves these questions? You know, because we go to bed easy, <laughs> you know, for, for not all of us, but for many of us, I mean, we just try to live our lives and we try to get through the day. And we, you know, we have enough concerns with our own family, our own jobs, our own health. Um, so it's difficult to really give consideration. But, you know, when I read, read when I read what he wrote, the timing just happened to be that we had had a, a meeting and I'd had discussions with other um, black friends, male friends, and just listening to them tell me in tears about how um, they had to have a conversation with their sons in, in two instances, telling them that, you know, if you're pulled over by the police, here's the precautions you have to take. And I just thought to myself, I have a 10 year old son and just the idea of even having that type of conversation was so foreign to me, you know, or when you know, one of them went running, um, that if they were by themselves, they had to be more vigilant and aware because they knew that, you know, people didn't just look at him as a runner being a, a black male, that they were kind of evaluating him or assessing him as a threat risk and that he yeah. had to be aware that, you know, the police could be called. And that as much as I knew it intellectually and I'd heard it before, I think just all of it coming together just really hit me really coming from friends. And, um, you know, it's just when you think about it, there's no easy answers. And, and but the first basic step is just to say, OK, you know, maybe change was too strong a word, but what can we do better? You know, if I had to rewrite that tweet, I'd say, what, what can we do better? Because I think, you know, a lot of white people took it as an affront that I was accusing them of racism, which I wasn't. This isn't really about racism, per se. This is about the little things that create stress that, that make it harder for, for minorities and, and black men in particular to, to survive or, or to get through the day. And, you know, those are stresses that we, you know, you and I don't have to deal with. Right. And, and so I think, 
you know, my hope was just to get the conversation going that let's, let's be a little, let's just do a little bit and an aggregate, it can turn out to be a lot. You must have had these conversations with uh, your players over the years. This isn't the first of such incidents. This has come up before, I assume. Yeah, but you know what? It, uh, it, it's unfortunate that I didn't really, it didn't really resonate with me as much as it should have. And I think that's what led me to, to do this tweet because I knew I'd take you know, a lot of grief for obvious reasons, but it didn't matter. I mean, you know, it, it was a long road for me to get here, but I got here. Yeah. You know, it's just sometimes, you know, as you get older, you learn lessons and you pick up some wisdom. So I'm hoping that's just this. This is just me picking up some wisdom. And, you know, I should have seen it before and I didn't. Listen, your point is exactly the one that hit me. The first thing I thought about was and then I heard my my friend Bakari Sellers on CNN make this point in a really eloquent and, and poignant way. If you're a person of color, what do you tell your children? How do you explain this? How do you explain not just this, but multiples of this? And how do you explain why the COVID-19 virus has so ravaged communities of color? And how do you, you know, there's so many. How do you explain that the PPP program has somehow eluded so many small businesses? And I know you've been studying this closely in minority communities. We should, I should ask you that. Why is that? How, how did that, how does that happen? You know, it, it was surprising to me, actually, and, and I'll tell you exactly. So when the program was conceived, the, the concept was perfect, right? How can we, what can we do to provide funding to small, medium-sized businesses so that they could retain their employees um, and, have those, and have those employees not go on unemployment in particular? And by keeping that connection, there'd be some more continuity in the economy, and that's good for everybody. And in particular, by keeping people connected and employed, particularly with the CARES program and paying the $600 stimulus edition, well, it saved taxpayers a lot of money as well. But what ended up happening was that um, it was delayed. And I mean, a lot of this is the fault of the Democrats as well, because when they were asking for money for museums and asking for this program and that program, I don't think they fully realized that every day was costing jobs, hundreds of thousands, if not more jobs. And so we got to this point where the program was late and that first tranche really went to companies that already had strong banking relationships. They already had credit in place with particularly larger banks. And that didn't bode well for minority companies um, or the very smallest companies. And so once we got to the second tranche, I tried to make it a point to go online, LinkedIn and Twitter and other places and deal directly with small companies to walk them through the, the steps required. Because in many cases, and this is a little bit counterintuitive to me, the smallest and most minority-run companies dealt with the biggest banks because they thought those were the safest choices when you know for just running their businesses. But in reality, because they didn't already have credit and they didn't have personal relationships with the bank, it was all done digitally or via email, and, they, and there's just it was impossible. Um, for those big banks to respond to everybody. You can't, you know, do, you know, no matter what the bank is, you can't do hundreds of thousands of loans um, through the PPP, and particularly with all the, the requirements, the paperwork requirements that were set in front of them, and reach small minority-owned businesses. And so that's what I had to try to do. And what I did was I, I connected them, you know, directly with smaller community banks who were able to give them that personal attention. I did Zoom meetings. With minority groups, I did, you know, got, went online and directly answered thing, questions. And once that was, I was able to connect them with a community bank, very often they were able to get funded in hours. And so it was just that lack of access to the right source that, that really put community um, um, minority-owned businesses at a disadvantage. But it does speak to um, the fact that in ways that, we, that a lot of us don't think about, there are systemic barriers that have grown or have become encrusted in generation after generation here. I mean, this is the larger point, which is there is a legacy in this country that we never fully confronted. And the question is now, how do we do that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, and there's no quick answers. And I think that's the key from my perspective to understand. There is no like one thing. Okay, here's, we do this and the, the switch is, is turned and everything's going to be okay. 
It's going to be gradual. And I think it's small, you know, you and I and our friends and the people we can talk to that look like us, if we can make small improvements in aggregate, it turns into big improvements. I think we try too much to, to try to do hit the home run. And, and that's hard. It's hard to get people to make major changes in their behavior when they don't particularly think they need to change their behavior. Right. I, I think it's easier to get them to just recognize, you know, just to think twice about the things they see or, or hear um, or perceive. You know, I'm just as guilty as everybody. You know, the example I use, if I'm with a bunch of my white friends and a white guy walks up, I'm like, hey, what's up? You know, you want a beer? If I'm with a bunch of white friends and a black man walks up, it's like, hey, um, who do you know here? <laughs> you know, you know, what, what can we do? You want a beer then, you know? Um, and just just thinking those things that may not aren't racist necessarily because you catch yourself, but it's not your first inclination, you know? And it's just getting people to recognize that that first thought, that first thought you have is the one that really needs to change. Even if you catch yourself and you get to the right spot, it's a lot of people have those first thoughts and that's where we need to work on each other. You know, and that's why I had the Dear White People tweet, um, tweet. Because if we can just make those marginal first thought changes, I think that's how it becomes, that's how it becomes more prevalent and has a greater impact. I want to ask you about you and, uh, and your story, uh, which I think is not well known. I mean, your success is well known, but your origins are not well known, and they're, and they're interesting. You were, uh, you're the son of immigrants. Yeah, second generation. My parents are the son of immigrants. All four grandparents came from Russia, um, didn't speak English. You know, the, the whole Jewish thing left because they were, you know, it was either leave or die. Um, came originally to New Jersey um, on my dad's side and Pittsburgh on, on my mom's side and just fought their way through it. I mean, my dad loves to tell the story. I mean, he and my, and my uncles, um, their family was one of only two white families on Center Avenue in, in Pittsburgh, which is the black part of town. And, you know, just growing up there and some of my earliest memories, you know, are you know, seeing black people around and being and having my parents, you know, my dad in particular, everybody is the same. Everybody is the same. Everybody is the same, you know, and and my uncle went on to be um, head of one of the school districts in, in around Washington, D.C. during the 60s. He wrote a book called The Negro in America, which was one of the first textbooks that um, was written to to talk about, you know, the place of the African-American, the Negro at the time. In American history, and so those are things I'm really proud of with my family, um, and, and had a big impact on me and my brothers. It's interesting you grew up in that environment, and yet, and and look, I did as well, and yet, you know, we still find ourselves asking these questions of ourselves, like all the things that we missed, all the stuff that we accepted as just a normal way of life that helped continue these kinds of legacies. Yeah. I mean, I think as we get older, we expect more of ourselves. I mean, you know, I, I've been blessed. I, I'm, I'm the luckiest person in the world. I mean, you know, I, I don't have to worry. There's a lot of things I don't have to worry about financially. And that gives me the opportunity to, to focus on other things and to try to offer help. And where I have expertise, like in business, try to, you know, help people wherever I can. And, you know, and, and as because of Shark Tank and the Mavs, I've, I've gotten this platform that, you know, I just would not feel right if I didn't use it for something I thought was important. Just to clear it up for anybody who has any um, questions about this, your family name was not Cuban to begin with. Your family name was uh, Chabaniski. Yeah, Chabaniski. And, and actually, that's still, everybody kind of debates it, depends on, you know, what type of Russian <laughs> you speak or spoke. Um, but yeah, my grandparents came over um, and my grandfather came over and it was something to the effect of Chabaniski. And it wasn't changed at Ellis Island. I always thought it was, but it, it was changed for him because he didn't um, speak English. And as it turns out, they, my grandfather's name was actually C-U-B-I-N. And on my dad's birth certificate, because my grandfather didn't speak any English. And when my dad and uncles were born, it was C-U-B-I-N on their birth certificate. But by the time we got to the point where I was born, it had just evolved to C-U-B-A-N. Just, you know, they didn't speak the language. Your dad was in auto upholstery. He was uh, not his own business, but... No, no, he, he actually worked with my uncle and you got a rip in your car seat and, and that's what they did. And, and, you know, he worked six days a week, 7 a.m. to whenever he got home. And, you know, he just 
did everything he needed to do to keep us going. And you were uh, like a uh, a little entrepreneur from an early age. What what motivated that? I have no idea. I, I think, you know, my dad would always push me. If I wanted something, I had to earn it. I had to figure it out. You know, he, he worked worked his ass off and never went to college. My mom didn't go to college till years later. And they, they always pushed me to, to learn and to try new things and to not be afraid of, of failing. And, you know, I used to sell, I used to repackage baseball cards with, you know, one pack with a Pittsburgh Pirate and you might get Roberto Clemente or Willie Stargell from back then and, you know, make a little money so I could buy more baseball cards. And then when I was 12, um, you know, I wanted a new pair of basketball shoes because I was a basketball junkie even back then. And my dad and his buddies were playing poker at the house. And I remember walking in and saying, Dad, I want a new pair of basketball shoes. He's like, like you did on everything. Those shoes, they fit, right? They still work, right? <laughs> when you have a job, you can buy whatever you want. And I'm like, Dad, and, and one of his buddies, probably drunk, you know, popped up and said, I've got all these boxes of garbage bags you could sell. And that's exactly what I did. Yeah. You skipped your senior year of high school. You went to uh, the University of Pittsburgh, and then you ended up at Indiana University, and you went to study business. You knew you wanted to be in business. Yeah, I kind of always did everything back-ass half-words. When I was in high school, they weren't going to let me take any economics classes because those were for seniors. So my junior year, I started taking classes at night at Pitt, um, and then my senior year, I dropped out, went to Pitt for a year, transferred those classes back to my high school so I could graduate, went to Indiana because I saw a list of the top 10 business schools. Um, and it was the cheapest. But when I got to Indiana, I decided that I was going to be really studious and really challenge myself. I wanted to see how smart I was. And this was back when to sign up for a class, they had punch cards. And so I snuck in to graduate level statistics, K501 at Indiana. I'm like, if I can pass stats in the MBA class, um, then, then I got this. I can do anything. And they, they never figured out that I shouldn't be there. Got an A. And then from there, they just thought I was in the MBA program. And so by the time I was halfway through my sophomore year, I had over a year of my MBA done. And I wasn't even 19. It was great. <laughs> you also had some businesses going there. I'm fascinated. I know you weren't dancing with the stars. I'm fascinated that you were giving disco lessons to sororities for $25 an hour. It was the best job ever. <laughs> and so I, I got asked. So I, I would dance and I would enter these little dance contests to try to win money because I... Cause, I could dance, and um, then somebody asked me, some girl asked me if I would come and teach the line dances to her sorority. They were having mom's weekend, and I'm like, yeah, and then she told another sorority, we told another sorority, and then it was the best job ever. And you started having disco parties at a bar, and you ended up buying the bar while you were a student? Yeah, so we, so by starting my sophomore year, we, I was a party promoter, you know, and so my friends and I... Um, we would rent the, um, Bloom, the Bloomington National Guard Armory, and we would, <laughs> we would just buy a bunch of kegs of beer. We'd all, you know, save up, get, put together the money, however it was. And then we printed out these, these um, invitations that I still have and rented these buses and just shipped down all these kids who were my age, right, 19 years old, weren't old enough to drink, and, and just made money. And that's how I paid for most of my sophomore year. Um, and then I kept on doing that. And, and my senior year, when I was doing that, um, I used to have them at this bar called the Silver Dollar Disco. And other than the nights I was there, they were getting crushed. So my friend Evan and I were like, can we buy the bar from you? And so for my senior year project, I opened and ran a bar called Motley's Pub in Bloomington, Indiana. I also read somewhere about how that whole experiment came to an end. <laughs> yeah, um, we had a wet t-shirt contest that the winner of the wet t-shirt contest turned, and I carded her. I, I remember vividly now that I carded her, and um, turns out she was 16 on probation for prostitution. So they don't teach you these lessons in business school, I imagine. No, that was that was and actually it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because otherwise, you know, not that there's anything wrong with owning a bar in Bloomington, Indiana, but I still may be there. You were there at a pretty good time uh, as a basketball fan. Oh, yeah. I mean, the year before, well, actually, the year before I got there, they they went undefeated, the only undefeated NCAA champ. And then the year I left uh, is when Isaiah Thomas came and they won as well. Yeah. Bobby Knight in his heyday back then. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files.
you headed down, you, you went home, you got crossways with, uh, you went work for a bank, just to use uh, a phrase that you grew up with and I grew up with, your chutzpah cost you your job there? You got a little at, uh, over your skis? Yeah, I was way over my skis and chutzpah was an understatement. Uh, you, know, I went, you know, I'd run my own businesses, so I thought, okay, I'm working for this bank and my job is to help them make more money, period, end of story. So I would send notes to the CEO of Mellon Bank as, as you know, having worked there for weeks and, and my boss would just come down on me. I started these things called the Rookie Club where I would invite senior management to come and have a drink with us. And my boss just torched me, torched me. And that was the end of my career there. Sent you down to Dallas where you uh, shared a three-bedroom apartment with six, among six people. Yeah, me and my five best friends. <laughs> Tending bar. Yep, at night, yep. And then you got a job that set you on a path here. Yeah, I got a job. Um, I'll never forget. I was working at night trying to find a job. And remember, this was 1982. And the last time unemployment was anywhere near these rates was then. You know, when I, the year I graduated, the unemployment rate was over 10%. And it was not easy to get a job. And so, you know, going to Dallas, I had a bunch of friends there, obviously sleeping on the floor, um, bartending at night, and then got a job. And I remember I saw it, you know, remember the classified ads, right? So I saw it in the classified ads, you know, software store looking for someone. I'm like, okay, you know, I know a little bit about software I can learn. And I walked in and they started asking me these questions that I couldn't answer. But he asked me two things. And he said, if you can do these, if you can answer these questions right, I'll give you the job. He goes, if someone asks you a question and you don't know the answer, what do you do? I said, you read the manual and you figure out the answer. And he goes, bing, bing, right answer. He goes, will you come and not tell the employment agency that sent you that we hired you so we don't have to pay the fee? I said, okay. And they hired me on the spot. And that lasted nine months until they fired me. Yeah, because you got out ahead of your skis again. What happened? Yeah, so um, I'm sleeping six guys in a three-bedroom apartment and I had a chance for a $1,500 commission. And realize I didn't have a drawer, I didn't have a closet, I didn't have a bed. Literally, unless one of the guys slept over at their girlfriend's, I never saw a bed. And, and so I had a chance to earn a $1,500 commission. Um, and so some of my responsibilities at Your Business Software were to sweep the floor, wipe down the windows, open up the door to, to make sure any customers who walked in, and we never had walk-in, but just in case. And... Um, I called up one of my coworkers, Barbara, and I said, like, can you take care of this and watch it? And she said, yeah. And I called up Michael, the, the CEO, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to go pick up this check thinking he's going to say yes. How can he say no? I mean, we need the business. He said, no, I made the executive decision to go pick up the check, brought it back thinking, how could he say no? $15,000, $1,500 for me, my 10% fired me on the spot. And so with that, I mean, I was stuck. I had nothing I remember having the conversation with, with one of my friends, should I go on unemployment? And I just couldn't do it. Um, and so that's how I started um, a company called Micro Solutions. You, you couldn't do it because you, you felt like it was... It just wasn't me. Yeah. Because there are a lot of people right now who are depending on that. Oh, yeah. Look, I don't hold anything against anybody. I mean, you pay your taxes. You know, it's, it's part of what, you know, that's the safety net that we need in this country. So I have no, no problems when people collect unemployment. I just... You know, 24 years old, 25 years old at the time. Um, I just didn't want to do it. Hey, I want to get back to this because the next turn turned out to be a, a really big one for you. But uh, just uh, on this point, do you think it was a mistake? You know, Britain, Germany, some of these other countries, they actually gave direct payments to companies for 80% of their payroll or more just to keep everybody employed. No, it wasn't a mistake at all. It was the right thing to do. The key is timing. I think what people fail to realize in, in the failure of the PPP wasn't in its goals. It was in the timing of it. Time was the ultimate variable to making the program work. And what's happened in Europe, that was a preset program. So when all this hit, it just triggered, right? And it, it's great. And so, you know, on the flip side, one of the biggest mistakes we could make now is to try to replicate that program because, again, timing, we're, we're in a completely different set of circumstances than they were at the time. Bloomberg had a piece today that said a third of the people who qualify for unemployment insurance still haven't gotten a check. You know, and that leads to a whole nother topic that we can get into. You know, we don't, one of the, we, we have social security cards, but now in this digital age, once you get a social security card, you should be required to open up a digital bank account 
doesn't matter with who, but it's got to be have access to the IRS and from the IRS because there will be another point in time where we need to deposit money into the hands of those who need it, um, whether it's for unemployment reasons, whether it's for a stimulus program again, you know, but we don't have that access and it's just crazy. You know, the fact that these states and even the federal government has to send tens of millions of physical checks is, is you know, it's crazy. Yeah, although you can't sign a digital, the president can't sign a digital. Uh, yeah. well, that's a different issue. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that. So you're 25. You've now flamed out on a second job trying to. Well, there's a couple in there I didn't even tell you about because they were shorter lived. <laughs> you started something called Micro Solutions, basically took the expertise that you gained in those nine months and, and went out on your own. And that one worked out well. Worked out really well. And, you know, you talk about expertise in nine months. What I knew was that the PC software industry was brand new to everybody. Every day there was some new technology that was coming out. And what I told myself is there's the people who invented it that know the most. And I was tied for second with everybody else. And so if I put in the effort to learn it and dig into the manuals, then I would have a huge advantage and I would be able to build this company. And that's exactly what I did. I started off with PCs, but then it occurred to me that there would be a really big opportunity connecting PCs together at a point in time in 1983 when people thought the idea of a PC was new enough. The idea of connecting them together was just crazy. And so that's what we focused on, something called local area networks. And we were one of the first integrators of local area networks in the country at the time. And that gave us a huge advantage Add to that, I taught myself how to write software, how to integrate databases, how to integrate, audio, you know, not so much audio and video, but visuals into databases. I wrote applications for Zales that I wrote applications for Walmart. And so that just kept on, kept us growing for the next seven plus years. And you ended up selling uh, to CompuServe. And so now you're 30, 31 years old and you're a millionaire. You know, I read a touching story about your dad and telling him, you, when you the first time you made a hundred thousand dollars in a year, which was clearly more than he'd ever made. Yeah, I don't think he ever made more than forty thousand dollars a year in his life, and you know, even up until his late sixties and early seventies, he wouldn't stop working. Um, and you know, obviously, like all dads, he wanted to pick up the check even after it was my credit card that he was picking up the check with. But yeah, my dad just burst into tears because it was such a foreign concept. And yeah, that must have been powerful for you. Oh my God! I mean. Yeah. They didn't, because, you know, just reading up, they were worried about you when you were younger. I mean, they were, they wanted you to, uh, to learn a trade, to do, to, to make sure that you could provide for yourself. <laughs> a lot of people were worried about me. So this must have been amazing for them as parents. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was crazy, you know, because they, they hadn't gone to college and it wasn't like I could, I would talk to my parents about education or business, you know. It was just foreign. It would be like, Mark, you know, I have no idea. What can I do? You know, you just have to figure it out yourself. And um, when I really started to get there, it, it, was, it, was, it was special, just being able to do those things for my parents. You took some time and enjoyed your, your winnings, traveled around, got one of those worldwide passes from American Airlines. Lifetime passes on American Airlines, yep. Went to Hollywood. Yep. Like, I'm told that there are uh, some episodes of... Uh, Walker, Texas Ranger. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was part of your interlude there? Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I went to L.A., you know, stayed on the beach um, in Manhattan Beach and took acting lessons, moved up to Hollywood so I could be closer to auditions, didn't really get anything good, um, and not anything I'm going to tell you that I got so people won't look it up. <laughs> um, lived next door to Keanu Reeves for a while, which was fun, um, and then came back to Dallas for a girl. Uh-huh. The girl who you ultimately married. No. <laughs> oh, okay. This was going to be such a nice story. It would have been a great story. No, but it wasn't. I didn't mean... Um, that was Holly, and so we ended up breaking up. It, it basically got down to, it's me or your business. And, you know, and so, um, you know, went back um, for, for Holly, and that didn't work out. But Dan ran in, you know, would get together with my buddy, Todd Wagner from IU, and um, we just started talking, and then it was the early days of the internet. And it was like, you're the geek. You know, we've got to find a way to listen to Indiana basketball over this new thing called the internet, and bam. Yeah, and, and that's what you did. And you, you, you formed something called AudioNet. It became Broadcast 
Com, and you streamed everything. That was, we were the very first streaming company, um, so we 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 did everything. Um, and so we started off with radio stations when it was just on demand, and you know back then it was hard. People wouldn't need a PC; they'd need a, a dial-up modem. They would need TCP/IP connectivity software, and we'd have to go work with them on it. But I, I would go on to um, forums and Usenet forums and. CompuServe and Prodigy and AOL chat rooms and just tell everybody, hey, if you're interested in Dallas sports or news, we've got the station KLIF that we are encoding off of their board and then taking back to my house into my bedroom and encoding it onto a server. And you can listen to all this stuff. And back then it wasn't live. It was only on demand. Then we went live. Then we had hundreds of radio stations. We created thousand plus um internet only um, radio stations on top of that. We, you know, we had a CD jukebox, all the things, you know, then we went to video, became broadcast.com and basically Pandora, Spotify, YouTube. Those were things that we were doing, not as well as them, but, you know, doing in the mid to late nineties. And you sold that for many multiples of what you sold your first business for. And instead of becoming a millionaire, you became a billionaire. And we'll talk about the next chapter in a second. But let me ask you something. Uh, as someone who has been sort of on the cutting edge of this internet revolution, there is this tremendous backlash right now to just the size and dominance of an Amazon. I know you've been a big investor in Amazon, of uh, Facebook, of the role that they play, uh, and so on. How do you evaluate that? And, and, you know, because it seems like people in both political parties are saying that has to be reined in. It's anti-competitive. It's monopolistic. To be forthcoming, I, I do have a big investment in Amazon. Um, yeah. But, but I, um, I can tell you both sides of the coin. On one hand, you know, I have companies that compete with Amazon. I have companies, smaller companies that can and do compete with Amazon. But I recognize the risk. And there's certain things that they do, like you know, they can look at their data and pick up products and OEM them themselves or white label yeah. them themselves. I think that's the biggest complaint. Yeah, and that's a problem. And and I can see a reason to restrain them from doing that. Um, you look at Facebook and what they're doing, you know, particularly with communications and, and you know, being a, a moderator and the challenges there. But I think here's here's why as of today, and this, I would love to be able to change my mind on this, but as of today, here's why I would not break them up. Um, Globally, artificial intelligence is going to define the future of technology. It is defining, it is the future of technology. And how sovereign nations deal with AI, how they invest in research, how they, their accomplishments in AI will determine the things that we can do as a military, the, the way we're able to compete as America Inc., you know, compete on the globally um, and create jobs. And we as, an, we as a country are not keeping up with what China's doing. We as a country in robotics, as an example, are not keeping up with Japan, Germany, or China. We're falling way behind. And the since we're not investing enough in that um, as, as a country, and we're not doing the research there, where that research is being done and where the leadership is, is via Amazon, Facebook, Google, Apple, Microsoft, et cetera, right? They are becoming much better at AI than some foreign countries. And having that ability here is critical because if I'm China in particular and I want to kick the USA's ass, then the way you do it is by keep on just investing, investing, investing in AI and robotics so that you can start taking the most important parts of our economy away as we go more and more digital. And so for better or worse, probably worse, the fact that we as a, a nation don't invest in AI and robotics nearly enough, the, our only fallback, our, our, last line of, uh, uh, our last line of defense in, in this topic, in, in this area, are those companies. And it's unfortunate, but it's a reality. Well, the alternative to your, you posit the right question. The question is whether we shouldn't launch a, a, a sort of Manhattan project as a country to, to catch up. Absolutely. When we talk about building, investing in infrastructure, you know, when we invested in the 60s and the 70s in infrastructure, it was to build roads that connected six cities. You know, we invested in airports to connect continents, you know, and those had incredible leverage points for our economy and for raising the standard of living. 
just revitalizing those things is okay. I mean, you have to keep your bridges safe and you have to keep your roads safe, etc. But that's not going to give us a leverage point like what we did in the past for infrastructure. Infrastructure going forward, infrastructure 2.0 has to be the United States of America having, like you said, a Manhattan Project for robotics, for AI, so that like we've done with COVID to try to really push the ball forward, or we're going to lose our, our dominance in the economy. We're going to lose the fact that we're the reserve currency, and it's going to get ugly. And I don't think our current president even fathoms that as an option. Yeah. You made an investment back in 2000 that every, every boy dreams of. Bought yourself an NBA team. Yeah, I got my buddy back there. You see that trophy back there? <laughs> yes. 2011. That's a good story uh, that we should get to. We should get to that. But, you, you know, it's interesting because you started off in the top deck uh, watching Mavs games, and, and then you bought the team. And you've had tremendous success with it, uh, including a title, winning teams. You've also gotten quite a reputation for your own role as a kind of performer on the side of the court there. Yeah. I get a little bit intense. That, that, that's my place to kind of let out. Everybody's got that one area where they're just intense, right? I'm cool, calm, and collected 22 hours a day. But those two hours of a Mavs game... It just is what it is. And there are a whole bunch of referees who have suffered for that. <laughs> you know, but they, a whole bunch of donut funds at the NBA that have benefited. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You, you've been fined, what, $2.5 million or something over the years? Something like that. Yeah, I try not to count. Is it worth it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> are, is it going to be? You know, we all know what happened. I, I was watching you on TV getting the word on your phone that the league was shutting down which really kind of was the moment when the country realized, holy smokes, this is, this is a big deal. Yeah, you saw my reaction. It, it was, I was stunned. Obviously, this is a big financial hit for everyone who owns teams. No one's going to cry too many tears for you guys. You, are, you were paying, I know initially you were paying all the folks who worked for the team, the people who worked in the arena and so on. Have you continued have you been able to continue to do that? Well, we, all of our employees, obviously, we have. And for those who worked on a per-game basis, we haven't, um, but we set up a program and worked with them through a group called um, SmartShift, where we donated money to SmartShift. And what they do is they find hours to work at local charities, and all the folks that worked at the arena are eligible, and we you know, encourage them to sign up so that they can pick up hours there. So we're not paying them directly, but indirectly we tried to find support programs for them. You think there's going to be uh, an NBA season yet in 2020? I know you guys have been talking about this with uh, Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA. Yeah, I'm hopeful. I mean, look, it obviously comes down to safety. We can't do anything that jeopardizes the health or safety of our players, our essential personnel, anybody in the organization. And that has to come first. But, but as you know, I mean, every single day we seem to get a little bit further ahead, not far enough, but, you know, we seem to be getting closer to a vaccine. We seem to be getting closer to testing availability and, and testing accuracy continues to improve. And I think the combination of those elements will allow us to create a, a singular environment. I call it Hotel California. You can check in, but you cannot leave until you lose in the playoffs. And, and I think with that type of control, um, we will be able to have a season or finish out our season, however we decide to do it. But it's still, we've got, you know, who knows exactly when it happens, but if we work backwards from a potential start date next season, maybe Christmas Day, maybe Thanksgiving, then we still have a few months in order to start the season. So, they, in other words, and this is what's been talked about, they, uh, the players would dorm in one place and they would play in one arena. There would be no fans but it would be televised so people would be able to watch the game. Correct. And you're starting to see NASCAR um, and golf, obviously, um, and soccer in Germany start to take those steps initially. And so we'll be able to learn from them as well. And, you know, we really haven't seen any really negative consequences so far. So you mentioned 2011. You guys were not looking like a championship team for part of that season, so much so that some of your ownership groups sued. Yeah, that was crazy. Yeah, I forgot about that. You bought the team from Ross Perot. His old uh, company uh, was suing because they they felt like you were mismanaging mismanaging the team, and you ended up winning the championship. Yeah, you know, revenge was sweet in that particular. It was crazy in the first place. You know, it is what it is. You know, you're not always going to be best friends with all of your partners. Ross was 
the person I bought the team from, he um, asked to retain some ownership, which I was happy to do to get the deal closed. And look, we're, we're fine now, but yeah, it was, was kind of, yeah, the irony of it all was, was nice. You, um, Mark, during a, you, you continue to do, obviously, investments and, and, and starting businesses and investing. We'll get to Shark Tank in a second. Uh, you went through an episode in the, in the 2000s, uh, in the early 2000s with the SEC, where, where you were charged with insider trading. And you fought a long legal battle, probably paid far in excess of what it would have cost just to pay a fine and settle. Uh, and why did you do that? And what, what did you learn from that experience? Because they were ignorant. They were trying to make me an example for something that was just ridiculous. And there was just no way. I mean, I could afford it. You know, it ended up costing me more than $20 million. And I could have settled easily for less than two. But there was just no way, um, given that I could afford it, that I was going to settle. Their case was ridiculous. Um, I, I mean, I'll just give you the, the two-second example. So I sold my shares of stock in this company, Mama.com, because one of their investors turned out to be a crook, a guy named Irving Cott. Had been charged, you know, he's the guy. So if you ever watched the Leo DiCaprio movie, Wolf of Wall Street, and, you know, you see Leo selling all these stocks. Irving Cott was the guy who would stuff the penny stocks into Leo DiCaprio's character's um, account, and he would go out and sell them in the boiler room. So that was this guy. And so when I found out the guy was a crook, I sold my stock. Two days later, the SEC calls me asking me for information about Irving Cott. I told them everything, right? Everything. Took them, I'm sure they took notes. They did take notes, right? And then, let's see, that's 2004. Two years later, they let um, Irving Cott off the hook, and they let Mama.com off the hook, and they start coming after me. Well, as it turns out, that interview, those interview notes from two days after I sold my stock got lost, just conveniently got lost. And that just set me off even more. I mean, their, their charge was that you sold because you had insider information that, and you avoided a loss. A loss of $750,000. They said the CEO called me, and when they said that they were going to do this thing called a pipe, which is a horrible financing for, for that type of company. And he said... He said, would you keep this confidential? And he said, my response to him was, uh-huh. And that was enough. And because he heard, uh-huh, even though, as it turns out, the call that he made got interrupted and dropped because of where he was in Montreal. I mean, it was just, just this travesty. It was just this cavalcade of stupidity from the SEC that continues to this day. The... Um and I don't. I'm. I, I'm not uh, trying to take you back to uh, bad memories. But the Mavs also. No, that's okay. No, because I loved kicking their ass, David. Loved, <laughs> loved it. The Mavs also had an issue relative to sexual harassment, not unusual in, in sports, and you ended up having to um, to to settle on that uh, suit. Yeah, that wasn't necessarily so. That was just um, my mistake. You know, I I didn't run. I wasn't. I was active on the basketball side. I wasn't active enough. On the business side, I had a CEO that was there for 15 years, was there when I bought the team, um, had been recommended by the NBA, was continued there, that turned out to, to not be a good guy and did not treat women um, as they should be treated, um, I mean, harassed people. And there were a couple other instances that I made errors in judgment on. And, and, and looking back, I, I do it completely different, but I learned a hard lesson. I, I learned a lot. It, it influences my perspective today. It, 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 you know, there's no other way to do it. There's no way to sugarcoat it. It was wrong. And it, it, there were a lot of women in the organization that were put in very unfortunate positions. Had they come to you? Had they complained to you? No. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. Shark Tank, uh, the show, Mark Burnett, who also was the creator of The Apprentice, created uh, this show. You've been on there since 2011. Uh, and the premise, for those who haven't seen the show, and a lot of people have, it's, it's, it's a highly rated show, is you guys, a, a bunch of you entrepreneur, you know, successful entrepreneurs, young people come bid uh, their ideas, and then you or present their ideas, and then you guys decide whether you want to bid on them or not. You've bid on a lot of them. 
Yeah, I've invested in, you know, over 150 probably by now over the 10 years I've been on the show. Um, and probably 25% of them have worked. 20%, 25% of them have been awful and a mistake. And the rest are finding their way and doing well. Is that about the right percentage? I mean, you, you've invested in a lot of things in your life. What is the percentage that hit? Typically for um, a venture capitalist, a, a traditional type investor, you want, you're, you want 10 to 15% of your companies to really do well because 85 to 90 are going to fail. So it's actually a good hit rate. But the difference also is these businesses are smaller, so I can help them stay in business. And you know they don't need to be big hits like a, a Silicon Valley investor might need. But I've had a few. I've had a company um, that um, Cycloramic that got sold to Carvana for mostly stock, and that stock has gone up tenfold since we sold it. So it's more than covered all my other investments. And I've probably invested 22 to $25 million in those companies across the 10 years. So let me uh, ask you a, a provocative question. What is the difference between Shark Tank and The Apprentice? And that should lead us into a discussion about Donald Trump, who you know well. Yeah, I wouldn't say well, but I know him. Yeah, I, I mean, I deal with him a lot. I don't know if I, I know, we're not, I know, I know him well enough. But yeah, the difference is very simple. In, in um, Shark Tank, our goal is to try to find companies we can help. You know, we can't invest in all of them, but certainly we try to make investments. We realize that an entrepreneur's life is on the line, um, and we, we really want to help them grow that business. And we've created, I don't even know how many thousands of millionaires with that show between the companies we've invested in, and you know, we all try to really push for equity ownership by, um, in those companies we invest in. And so a lot of people have done really well, and their employees have done really well. Contrast with that with The Apprentice, where all he did was you know, create stunts and say you're fired. You know, the thing about Donald Trump, in all these years of him being a public figure, um, you've never, ever heard a company come out and say, yeah, Donald invested in me and gave me my start, or Donald's been a great mentor and helped me grow my business, or I really owe a lot to, to Donald. Um, never. Not once. Do you consider him a successful businessman? Yeah, I think he's got, he's got a, a set of skills that when he sticks to those, he's great at figuring out great locations. I mean, you know, Trump Tower is all him. You know, um, Woman Ice Rink is all him. So I'll give him credit there. But um, I, I think he's had more failures than he's had wins. You know, the, because some, I, I remember back in, the, in 2015, I asked someone to do a tab in a poll uh, of uh, the Republican primary and I asked him to add, do you watch The Apprentice or don't you? And the two things struck me. A lot of people who were voting in that Republican primary watched The Apprentice. And among those people, his ratings were astronomical. Among all the others, they were flatter or negative. And he developed through that show this image of a, of a you know, hype, uber successful businessman on which he, you know, he built his political climb. Look, again, I don't want to take anything away from him for Trump Tower and, and Woolman. But if you look at his biggest score since then, it was because he, um, he had a loan that failed. And he convinced the lenders to, in writing off the loan, to give him 30% of the upside over a billion dollars. And the lenders did it just to get rid of him, thinking the valuation of those properties would never get there. And those turned into his biggest win. And he, when, when that was sold and he collected that 30% over a billion dollars, he sued saying it was undervalued. And as it turned out, remember that 2005 um, tax returns that he leaked showing he made $105 million. It was because of that, um, the sale of, of those properties. And he only had that public because he had sued them and that amount was going to end up being reversed um, because of the lawsuit. So just that's who he is. There's just, yeah, look, there's nobody today that goes to him and says, we really need your business advice. And I remember I had a conversation with him. And this is before that when I was, I wasn't supporting him necessarily, but I was entertained by him. And I literally, when he first came out, I said he could be the best thing that ever happened to politics because he says exactly what is on his mind. It's not rehearsed. And I believe that. Um, and, and I just didn't know the rest of it. But I was having a conversation. It was right before the CNBC um, um, debates. And I'm like, Donald, why don't you go out and go talk to some small businesses and help them and, and show them and, and show your business acumen? And he was like, Mark, Donald Trump and Mark Cuban don't go to small businesses or sit at people's dinner table and talk to them. 
I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Well, he was true to his word on that one. Yeah. I had another example where I was like, I use this real estate analogy, talking about internal rate of return. And I'm thinking he's going to bust me on this. Right. And he didn't understand it. And so it's just he is who he is. Listen, uh, he I said he built his career on the basis of that show. You've talked about running for president before. You even earlier this year you talked about it. I presume as an independent that would have been. Uh, do you still harbor those thoughts? Uh, is that something that you would consider doing? Well, I'll tell you exactly where it stands. So my family voted it down. Otherwise, I would have. But because of everything that happened with the pandemic and you know, there's up until today, actually, the Biden speech was amazing. But up until today, there's still, you know, were a lot of questions about Joe Biden and, and as many as there were about Donald Trump. So I hired a pollster and I, this was two weeks ago, three weeks ago. And during the pandemic, right, right towards the beginning, actually, um, when the poll was ha- happened. And what they found out was I would take some votes away from Donald Trump, particularly with independence in a three way between me, Biden and Trump, I just dominated with me as an independent. I dominated the independent vote. I got like 77, 77% of it. And I was able to take some votes away from Donald um, and some votes away from Biden. But in aggregate, I was only able to get up to 25% from every which way, cross tab, you, you name it. I had it analyzed and scrutinized every which way, you know, you know, projected, and they could only see me getting up to 25%. And so that's why I didn't pursue it further. You, uh, your late partner, uh, Ross Perot, could have given you some insights into that. He, he put a billion dollars in and got 19% in 1992. Yep. And the, the folks who worked for him came to me and, and asked to help me. And I just, you know, if, I if the numbers would have come back significantly higher, and I would have been able to take more away from either or both candidates, then I probably would have, you know, tried to convince my family, but given where they were, it just wasn't worth it. Were you worried about tipping the election to Trump? Not so much that, but I just didn't think I could win. You know, I mean, look, part of me, the competitive side of me thought, okay, when people heard me speak, when people heard my positions, when people heard me, you know, the fact that I understood what I was talking about and I understood technology and none of the candidates understood technology, you know, that maybe I could do it. So it wasn't so much about tipping the election one way or the other. But, you know, what the pollster said, yeah, you think that and you may be able to get up higher, but it's still going to come down to one of those other two candidates. And it'd be more like 1992. How do you evaluate? I asked you to evaluate Trump as a businessman. How do you evaluate him as president? You know, I think he got off to an okay start. You know, um, I didn't like the the specifics of the, the tax plan, but I thought corporate taxes needed to be lowered some. I wouldn't have lowered them that much. Um, I didn't think um, personal taxes needed to be lowered as much as they were. I, I think they should have gone up for folks like me. Um, and, you know, I understand how Republicans and conservatives like the fact how he's trying to tilt um, the judiciary. But after that, I mean, he, he's, he's a victim. You know, he, he's, he's not a leader at all. He has no communication skills. He, you know, to this day, nothing is his fault. He's never admitted anything. And you can't be the leader of the free world and, and play the victim card all the time. It's just it just doesn't work. It's counterproductive. And, and it's led to us being diminished um, globally. What did you think about the role that he played last night uh, in Washington? I mean, it, it was so ridiculous. I mean, you know, clearing out the protesters to have this walk with, you know, what, five or six white people, you know, just the contrast there. And then to hold up, up the Bible, right? and say, this is the Bible, I kept on waiting for him to say, this is a book. I heard I, people tell me a lot of people read these and then on the pages, there's information. There's just, once again, there's just no substance to anything he says. But on the flip side, you know, you have to respect the fact that there's a reason why all, you know, all those people voted for him. And I think part of what the Democrats are missing and independents are missing is that people aren't necessarily, that vote will continue to vote for him, aren't necessarily supporting him. It's, they're supporting, they, they just don't see a better alternative. And we haven't, and no one's done a good job of showing that Biden was a better alternative. We let Hillary Clinton be demonized to no end. And I think they're starting to do that with, with Joe Biden. And so part of what has to happen, regardless of what he does, regardless of these stunts, 
regardless of the fact that he's oblivious to what's happening in the world and in our own country, you know, oblivious to what's happening in the economy, there's got to, the Biden campaign has got to do a far better job of making him stand up and be strong like he was today. You think, could you see yourself endorsing him? Yeah, absolutely. But I'm, I'm in a way because just crazy, crazy things can happen. There's no reason to rush to it. But, you know, it's, I see the fears that some Trump supporters have in terms of the economy, you know, um, particularly, you know, pre-convention when there's, there's a final selection of Biden. What is the, the Bernie influence? You know, what is the Elizabeth Warren influence? You know, yes, taxes are going to have to go up. Yes, tax me more. But what are you going to do with business? And I understand how that's a very significant concern. And I also understand that Biden has got to placate, you know, that far left. I don't want to call it far left, but the people that are more progressive than he is. That concerns me because if that's not handled correctly, things can get worse, you know, economically. And that could be catastrophic. And if we're going to make it so Joe can and can win, then we've got to be able to balance those two things. And I want to wait and see what he does there. You know, Mark, we started this conversation talking about race and the consciousness of race as uh, a factor in these inequities that have uh, visited communities of color. Trump has been a very, very aggressive player of the kind of race card. Uh, And his appeal, uh, you know, when I saw that thing last night, you know, my thought was, you know, he's uh, I'm a, a couple of years older than you, but back in 68, we saw uh, Nixon and run as a law and order candidate, uh, you know, with all this. And there was a very much of a racial uh, component to that message. You, you say you like Biden's uh, speech this morning. What should a president be doing now? Because it really felt last night that Trump was throwing salt in the wound to try and galvanize his own base. Yeah, we still have a pandemic going on. And, you know, that puts us all, every single American, in the position of who do we trust with our lives? You know, it's hard to know scientifically, medically, what the right things are. Um, what should we do? We see these protests in a world where we're supposed to be social distancing. You know, what, what happens next from that perspective? And so we need somebody to come out and be transparent, authentic, honest, And that's just not Donald Trump. And that's just creating a lot more distress leading, I think, not that he's directly creating the problem, but he's not dissipating the the challenges and the stress that's being created, particularly for minority communities. And that's what we need. And now over the next month to six weeks, we're going to have this push and pull over whether or not the whole lockdown and shutdown was legitimate or not, depending on what the numbers are for you know, any type of flare-ups of COVID. You know, oh, look, we had all the, all, you know, these protests and riots and get-togethers and this country, this county or this city or state opened up, yet here are the numbers and everybody's going to spin those numbers, this, you know, in their own, the way that, that supports them the most. And we will have a president that is going to, again, throw more gasoline on one side. And so we're going to need Joe Biden. We're going to need other leaders. And again, you don't have to be the leader to be a leader. I'm certainly going to be out there trying to say, look, here's what the the real information is. We're not getting this information from our president. We're going to be learning more over the next six weeks. We need to be very cognizant of what's real and what's not. And it's going to be these next six weeks are going to be super difficult. I mean, it's just, you know, should have opened, didn't open, didn't have a a resurgence of COVID, see, you know, you did it wrong, Donald Trump did it right. And unless somebody is out there being really transparent and honest about everything going on, it's just going to lead to to who knows what challenges. I hope that, you know, in a way that we have that problem, because it'll mean that we haven't had another surge uh, of the virus. You got to worry about what the impact of these, uh, of all of this activity, the the protests, which I support, but the gathering of people uh, you know, is now the virus is still out there, so we'll see what happens. But in any case, I know that you will be out there and you will be commenting, and it's great to spend time with you, Mark Cuban. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, David. I really appreciate it. It was in, it was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Axe Files. 
brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.